IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel says he's working on a more complete plan for the agency's hiring. Over the next decade, the IRS in the short term plans to make tens of thousands of new hires by the end of fiscal 2024. The IRS is doing this hiring using initial dollars from that $80 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act. Werfel says those funds dramatically improved taxpayer services this filing season. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has been following all of this. He joins us with the latest. And so what is the update to that hiring plan, Jory? Well, what we already know at this point is that the IRS plans to hire 10,000 new employees by the end of this fiscal year and then do that again by the end of fiscal 2024. But what Commissioner Werfel told the Senate Finance Committee is that he's going to have a more complete picture through the 10-year timeline of this Inflation Reduction Act spending, and that's going to be coming in the coming weeks here. And this, we should note, a lot of this hiring is meant to replace people currently at the IRS that are near or past retirement age, the IRS expects that in the coming six years, two-thirds of its current workforce is going to be retirement eligible and that the attrition rate is ticking up. Right. There's that constant notion, I guess, maybe by people that oppose this plan that they're going to hire some 80,000 or 60,000 new gun-toting agents. And that's not really the plan at all. No, no. You know, it's it's certainly some enforcement, but you know, a big focus of what we're talking about here is also taxpayer services. And that's one big message that Werfel tried to convey during this committee hearing. This year, we proved that dramatic improvement is possible. The question is whether we can continue to improve. And that's IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel speaking to the Senate Finance Committee earlier this week. And paying for all this hiring is strictly the, the inflation reduction money. Or they do have a base budget to begin with. Yeah, so the way that Werfel described it, the annual appropriations is meant to cover the day-to-day expenses, and the $80 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act is meant to cover the long-term investments, and hiring is one of those investments, and also investing in the taxpayer services, and using about 1% of that $80 billion, the IRS was able to dramatically overhaul its level of phone service this filing season that just wrapped It was able to answer about 87% of calls, and that's compared to 2022 when they could answer maybe 15% of calls. Wow. All right. That is, like you said, dramatic improvement over the period of a year. And what about the 2024 budget request? Yeah, well, the IRS is going back hat in hand here asking Congress for a higher budget than it currently has. They're asking for a $14.1 billion budget for FY 2024. Their current budget is $12.3 billion. So Werfel is saying... What we've seen so far is that the IRS, in terms of service, you get what you pay for. If we're funded at a steady level or cut, then all we can do is maintain our current operation. We have to make investments to deal with this complexity of what we see today. And, Jory, getting back to the call volume, call answering issue, this seems to be really important in the hearing. The senators were concerned about that as kind of emblematic of all of the IRS's service problems? Yeah, no one disputes that the percentage of calls answered was better, but there was some going back and forth between Werfel and some members of the Senate committee in terms of how many calls the IRS got this filing season versus other filing seasons. Some senators thought maybe taxpayers were fed up with prior performance and they didn't bother to call the IRS this season. Werfel said that the a lower call volume might actually be indication that's a sign of things working and improving. If you say that the call volume went down, that's actually a good thing. That means that our website is working effectively. That means that our apps are working on our smartphones more effectively. If we can build that infrastructure and modernize 
It's an example. If we just operate at the same budget or less, then maybe we can answer the calls. If we have investments, then maybe we can build and build the callback option. Yeah, sounds like omni-channel Danny. And to Werfel's point there, the callback option, by this summer, the IRS expects to roll that out to about 95% of taxpayers. So the filing season did end earlier this week, the day after Patriot's Day in Massachusetts, as is traditional. What happens now? They've got to get down to brass tacks for everything else they've got going. Right. Well, the soonest the IRS starts working on next year's filing season is the day after the current filing season ends. And so that is going to be a major concern. Werfel said that the people manning the phone lines, that they will be able to be moved to dealing with the IRS's still ongoing paper backlog. So that's just a taste of what the IRS expects to do. You know, that short-term addressing of the backlog and that longer-term overhauling of the workforce, overhauling of the IT. Seems like they have a big training need here as they hire these new people, whether they're replacements or additional employees over their baseline. People have to know what they're doing. I mean, if you answer the phone, it's one thing to have capacity to answer the phone. It's another thing to give the right answer to the question on the phone. And not just the right answer, but that if they have to call back again, they're going to get the same right answer from a different person. So that's something that the IRS has thought about. They really do need to invest in that. They've said time and again, training is usually the first thing to go in terms of cuts when they've had to go through belt tightening. And so that's something that they are now looking to ramp back up. All right. And enforcement, that has been a big question because billionaires, millionaires, and so forth, and who gets audited in enforcement. How did that come out at the hearing? Well, in terms of where the IRS is currently with its enforcement, uh, it is in a tough situation. Um, The IRS overall has a staffing level that's comparable to the 1970s, and the tax code has gotten far more complex over the decades. And what the Treasury Department estimates here is that the top 1% of U.S. earners account for about $160 billion of the current tax gap. So that's something they're going to have to look at. Werfel did say that currently, in terms of the enforcement side of things, the IRS has about 2,600 people who are tasked only on dealing with high-income earners and companies. And their universe of people they look at, it's 390,000 high-income individuals and companies. Must be mostly companies, because didn't President Biden the other day say there's a thousand billionaires in the country, so let's go after them. And you can't have an IRS hearing and modernization hearing and future hearing without talking about their information technology. Right, right. That's certainly a huge part of the investment here, too. They are looking down the line to invest more in scanning capabilities to really, again, address that paper backlog of what they're dealing with. They still get millions of paper-based tax returns every year. And it's a small percentage of what they get overall, but it still just is a huge time sink for them. Another big part of what they're working on is a long-deferred upgrade of the individual master file. This is the, the mother brain of the IRS in terms of uh, their, their database of what individual taxpayers' history has been with the agency. They are now looking at 2028 to finally have that modernized. Warfel admits that this is something that is now years overdue. But once they finally get to do that, they can really automate some more processes and just generally have a 360-degree view of taxpayers' dealings with the agency every year and, and just going back a considerable amount of time. Well, when they first started that IMF modernization of the idea of it, I think Danny Werfel was probably in high school or college. So maybe by 28, they'll get it done. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. 
Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out all of his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who 
were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart 
for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.